Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zagney. Joining me today, once again, is our friend, Rowan Kaiser. Hello. And we also welcome back our friend, freelance writer, TJ Hafer. Hello, hello. Uh, so, I should start the show by apologizing a little bit for probably the audio quality you're hearing right now. Uh, I am recording from a very new and very empty apartment. And while I did consider running into a rug store and just like buying out their entire inventory and just draping everything around my living room, uh, (laughs) I opted against that. Uh, And so we're just going to have to put up with a little bit of the echo uh, from this cavernous new living room. Uh, So apologies and hopefully uh, regular service and regular audio quality will be uh, restored shortly. Uh, That apology is also extended, of course, to our producer, Michael Hermes, who I am certain uh, probably (laughs) spent far too much time trying to uh, wizard his way out of having this echo even appear on this track. Uh, Anyway, so today we are gathered together to talk about uh, alternate histories. And uh, Rowan, this topic idea came from you, so I'll just I'll just sort of throw it over to you, and, and maybe you can take us into what you wanted to get at by by discussing this. Uh, yeah, so this kind of came up for me mentally when I was playing Hearts of Iron Four quite a bit this month or last month, I suppose. Um, basically, it's a game built around this, you know, arguably the most dramatic 10-year span in history and, like, all the different things that could have happened in that time. So it's sort of built around consistent alternate history. Like, some of it is, you know, within the, like, main game, what happens if this army wins here? Whereas other parts of it are um, built in, like, what happens if France goes communist or France goes fascist? Things like that. So it's, it's really kind of set up this uh, concept of we want to make a plausible alternate history for World War II or the same thing. And it got me thinking about like how I kind of think about alternate history in historical strategy and war games. And uh, for a long time, I have had a an idea that I've called historical equilibrium, which is uh, based on um, when I played the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games. I love the Three Kingdoms novel and the the whole idea of it and played my chair of dynasty warriors and tactics and so on but i've always struggled with the romance of the three kingdoms games in large part because it's never seemed like they can actually have the right outcome and by the right outcome i mean the historical outcome where you have in that case um a whole bunch of warring factions settle into three kingdoms obviously and then one of them starts to win and it gets a coup that takes over so a different family than the one that's in charge wins and that just never happened in any of the like five or six romans the three kingdoms games i played so one of like my basic philosophy about what makes for a good historical strategy game is if you just let it run is it plausible that history will happen again and if not then you're going to have some issues um and i wanted to just kind of throw it back to you guys about what you thought about that and then uh talk about why hearts of iron has made me kind of change my mind about that yeah i I find that i find that anecdote really interesting because i totally get where you're coming from it's it's this weird it's this weird thing where on the one hand i want an a game that is sort of alternate history based Uh, I want to, like, feel like there's a lot of different ways it can go. I want to feel that there's, like, a lot of freedom, a lot of possibility within that space. But then at the same time, if it diverges too far from, like, the known facts, I begin to get a little antsy. Because, like, 
is it just not getting some of the factors that drove the actual historical outcome? Uh, what's what's going on underneath the hood there? And that starts to bother me. And I so, sort of like... <laughs> I think I certainly end up in this weird place where I almost want, like, um, whatever the alternate history version of, like, rubber banding would be. Like, I want to feel like yeah. I want to feel like a system has a little bit of a tug back toward historical reality. Not so, not so hard that I, can't, that I can't push history completely off track, right? But I want to feel a little bit like there's, uh, that there's some sort of, like, historical, there's some historical forces that are sort of trying to right the ship of causality, as it were. Yeah, well, when when Rowan started talking about Romance of the Three Three Kingdoms, the thing that immediately came up to me is the War of the Roses in EU4. Because you can play a thousand games of EU4, and the way that the War of the Roses is never going to end is with York and Lancaster both being without a claimant and some random, you know, Welshman ends up becoming king. And if you think about it in terms of the way the mechanics of the game work, that, that kind of makes sense, the way it's set up. Either a York or a Lancaster would win, but then knowing history, you feel like that's, that's not quite right because this crazy weird like thing no one could have predicted actually did happen. And I think that in historical strategy games, we don't see that enough. Um, might be a comment that I would, I would have is, is just these kind of out-of-nowhere events that seem borderline illogical but actually make it feel more historical because we know that that's the way history works. Or happened to work, which is yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the issues yeah. here. Or because happened to work, yeah, exactly. You, you, like the... When I was talking, uh, when I mentioned that the Hearts of Iron 4 has kind of made me question this, part of the issue is that, you know, what if... Hitler and Germany's rise to power in World War II is actually just really weird. And they're so if you have set that up as historical equilibrium where Germany does really well and then gets it slowly pushed back by the Americans and the Russians, then you know you have created what appears to be a normal history. And sometimes Germany might do better and sometimes Germany might do worse. And I think Arts of Iron Four is pretty good at that, although I don't think the AI handles big wars super well, but um theoretically it's pretty good at that but like if that was a really weird event and if especially if you were doing like a longer term game where you have something like uh cortez's uh conquest of the aztecs i think is also a really weird event um mm -hmm. then like if you don't model that at all it gets weird but if you do model that maybe that maybe that was just actually super random yeah that's that's a really good point too is that there are a lot of major historical events that were, or at least we think, were really contingent on uh, sort of key moments, fluke, fluke happenstances, right? Uh, and and the thing that like the thing that strategy games are good at doing is systematizing uh, the day to day, right? Like just sort of like if everything is sort of behaving predictably and sort of the way it should. Um, then you're going to get this, then the system is going to produce these sorts of outcomes for these sorts of reasons. Uh, but what that doesn't quite get at are just, like, like you said, just like weird fluke events. Uh, and certainly like, well, I think this is one reason you notice that a lot in like Hearts of Iron is that <laughs> pretty much everything about 
the rise of the Nazis in particular is is profoundly strange, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's a very hard thing to like. If you design the system to run like a hundred times, I suspect Adolf Hitler doesn't become this totalitarian ruler of Germany in most of those realities. Yeah. Uh, but that's what happened. And so you kind of have to create a system where like that's going to happen. And at that point, you're starting to create a system that's uh, going to going to skew in some weird directions. Now, Hearts of Iron doesn't deal with that. Hearts of Iron says, okay, he's already, he, you know, he's here and he's in charge. That's, that's done. Uh, but, but like, I think this came up a little bit on our Hearts of Iron show as well. We all want to see the crazy, amazing shit from history, right? So, like, we want to see... So, okay, perfect example is uh, Battle of Midway, right? Um, the, the Japanese are destroyed completely and utterly in the space of just a few minutes of the Battle of Midway. And it's because the American air attack on the Japanese fleet was a complete clusterfuck. Um, and the sort of old torpedo bombers from the American fleet arrived early, and they were unescorted. Uh, I think that's how it went down. And then they were all shot to shit. And then the Japanese planes returned, and they they hauled in their, uh, their, their combat air patrol, and everyone, basically every Japanese plane landed and started refueling for their second sortie of the day. And that's when the American dive bombers sort of stumbled, like came across them and caught the entire Japanese fleet in the middle of refueling. And then a few bomb strikes hit, you know, hit fuel stores. In, in five minutes, the entire balance of power in the Pacific is, is, is overturned. Like Pearl, Pearl Harbor has been, been avoided. Uh, the war now is almost, the, the naval wars is to a degree like a foreground conclusion. That would piss me off as a player, though. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, You'd hate it. Right, exactly. And so it's, it, it's an interesting thing, right? So like, like to a degree, as someone who wants to play a game about the Battle of Midway, I kind of want that moment, right? I kind of want like that, that instant where like, yes, the Americans have caught Admiral Nagumo, uh, you know, unawares, and the the best carrier uh, aviation force in, in in the world is about to be destroyed. Uh, that's a really cool thing. But if someone wants to play a naval war game again and again and again, I don't want my three carriers just blowing. I don't want my three carriers just blowing the fuck up. Uh, t- you know, time and again because like of this insane freakish chance. Uh, I'm not even sure I want it happening once. Uh, if I've gone all the effort of yeah. of building those fleets and arranging all these battle plans, and so it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting case where like I, I think most systems probably most systems you design wouldn't throw up that outcome, uh, but that's the outcome that mattered historically. So. What well, does the even, designer do with that? Even as an American player, I don't know if I necessarily want that to be part of the game because I, I feel like, oh, because of because of nothing I really did, just because of this historical flavor event, I now am just going to have, you know, a waltz to the Japanese home islands, basically, when, when I wanted to be continuing to struggle and continuing to have to outthink my opponent. Like, you, you don't even want to be on the right side of that kind of a, a fluke scenario, I don't think you want you want to be you know continually challenged, and that's something I've definitely felt in Hearts of Iron that where it's like okay, I I 
pulled off this encirclement and now the rest of the war in the east is just going to be a cakewalk this is uh this is also something that's weird when you're just talking about uh historical battle simulations versus historical war simulations versus you know overall grand strategy historical simulations because if you have something like um maybe not necessarily hearts of iron but if you have something like europa universalist you could have this idea of like okay we can't have whatever fluke happens here you know a cortez invasion say but we can have spain Systems that have Spain be remarkably powerful when they attempt to colonize and probably, if they ever so desire, could go and take Mexico. So they can kind of balance that over literally centuries. Whereas if you're playing a game that is like just the war in the Pacific, then that gets a little more difficult especially if it's one of those like hyper detailed ones that models every single individual plane and so on or if you're playing just a game on just the battle of midway then like you have to basically build your entire system around that entire fluke event um make it so that it is plausible for that thing to happen and that becomes a a difficult sort of discussion and i think it's one that um paradox has very much changed their ideas on since i started playing the eu games was they would have these events that were supposed to trigger at certain points um that would make vaguely historical things happen like the russians would in eu2 would just utterly collapse during this period of um where historical period where they collapsed over 50 years and had a really hard time with maintaining everything and there were just events that fired but now that's something that's modeled within the game by the monarch points that you're getting or not getting or using to maintain things that maybe you can't maintain anymore and i think that's become a better way to smooth that over but it's not necessarily one that has the crazy wild events happen that you might want yeah and i've always been um I think everyone loves a good event chain. <laughs> but it's also a little bit like... Um, <laughs> have you ever read uh, Stephen King's On Writing? Oh, I love that book. Yeah, it's One of my book. favorite books of all time. Uh, it's yeah. just a great book. It's, even if like, yeah. you're not looking at writing advice, it's just a really sort of interesting look inside uh, Stephen King's career and his views on the world. But uh, events sort of remind me of what he says about adverbs right which is like you look at one it's like, like adverbs are like dandelions you know you look at one and it's this pretty little flower but if you don't rip it up by the root uh and you let it sit there uh the next time you look out uh your window your your lawn's going to be covered in goddamn weeds i love adverbs and uh i feel like event chains are a little bit like that too they can have this really powerfully descriptive and evocative effect um and it's exciting the way they can sort of change up the the order established by the system but i want that done kind of judiciously right because i don't because you don't want it to feel like you're dealing with a bad dm who's just like come hell or high water <laughs> The, the, the game master is going to tell that goddamn story <laughs> they had in mind, and you're all going along for a ride, no matter what the uh, yeah. results are. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of how I view events the same way, right? Is like, 
they're cool things that, that can do a ton to sort of give you this this feeling of being in this uh, like rich uh, you know narrative world in some ways. But if they happen too often, it starts to feel like they're undercutting the systems that I've been sort of painstakingly trying to master. Well, I think one one uh, way that Hearts of Iron specifically has done historical events that I actually liked and would love to see more of out of Paradox is having straightly ahistorical events where things could turn out very differently from how they did historically, and there's a full write-up for that, because basically every every historical event I can think of off the top of my head in EU4 is something that actually happened, and it might not happen. You know, the conditions have to be right for it to happen, but if it does happen, it happens pretty much as it did historically, whereas I would love to see more events that are specifically written for eventualities that did not come to pass, but that have, you know, the same detail and the same thought put into them as the historical historical events did um if if we're talking about you know creating alternate histories that are going to feel more historical you know even though they don't turn out the way that we expect them to that's definitely something i think that it could help that quite a bit another issue is that uh hearts of iron 4 those alternate history events tend to be things that the player specifically chooses or perhaps the ai chooses but there's a, a choice there that and something is probably taken away like uh, i've played a fair amount of france and they have are probably the wildest potential events chains that you can have they can set them up to create their own faction you can set them up to go fascist and join Italy, go fascist and join Germany, go fascist, create their own faction, communist and join the Soviets, and so on and so on. Like, they could pretty much do any of the main things. Join any of the main groups, either for themselves or with the with the uh, democracies or totalitarians. Um, and, like, I'm choosing that. I'm saying, this time, I'm going to join up with Italy and freak Rob out. Um <laughs> <laughs> Like that's that changes things a lot too, and I think that uh, um, even if the AI is choosing those things, it still it still feels like there's something happening specifically because um, there is an idea and a goal or whatever, and that's somewhat different than an event just sort of firing in most other games. So speaking of like the paradox games we've been talking about. Um... So Paradox games all have a very interesting setting, uh, which is, in EU4, I think it's like basically the Lucky Nations options. That's uh, right. In Hearts of Iron, there's the uh, historical focuses. So every time, like, you as the player get a decision tree about policies, but every time the AI comes to a crossroads, it will follow the historical path laid down for it. And I find that very interesting because what I've learned over time is that in general, uh, and this goes back to my, my what I said about rubber banding, I prefer playing Paradox games where I am the historical wild card. Uh, I am the agent of chaos. I'm the time traveler. But the AI's job is to convince me that, I'm actually, that I've actually gone back in time. And generally I'm happier when uh, when the AI is sort of roughly following historical path as much as it can, given the changes they're propagating through the system as I begin to play with it. 
Uh, now, with, with Hearts of Iron, I've gotten away from that a little bit just because, like, look, I just want my World War II era, like, Battle Royale. So that's <laughs> not, like, you know, there's only so many times Germany can invade Russia, and I'm like, hell yeah, this is awesome. Uh, eventually, I'm going to want, like, Germany and Russia to be allied against the Italian Colossus or something like that. Yeah. Uh, like, that's cool. But but in general, though, and 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 actually still my favorite games of Hearts of Iron 4 uh, tend to be the ones where I am playing around with a reality that is trying to correct itself but I'm in there kind of messing things up I think sometimes it can heal itself and sometimes it can't there, I, what, I had a long game as communist France where I as quickly as I possibly could before Germany invaded um aligned with the soviets and when germany did declare war on me uh the soviets immediately declared war on them and that was not a good situation for germany and there was no real way that they could get out of it and i had historical focuses on so they were sort of okay we got poland now it's time for france oops that's not just time for france and i feel like uh, you know a real world germany might have made a decision about what they were trying to do in that case that might have been slightly wiser than opening yeah. up a two-front war. So. Well, that's that's definitely a way that Hearts of Iron specifically is different for me, because normally I'm I'm like Rob. Normally I want the rest of the world to behave realistically, and then I can be crazy if I want. When I'm playing Hearts of Iron 4, especially if I'm playing the Comintern or the Allies, like... I want this narrative experience where I'm afraid of Germany. Like, I don't want them to behave historically because historically they did a lot of things that made them lose. And I want to actually be scared of losing to the Nazis and watching fascism take over the world. Like, I feel like if that's missing, I'm, I'm, I'm half-hearted in the war effort because I'm like, I'm the United States and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, all the numbers say we're going to win. So yeah, I guess I'll send some volunteers over, you know, whatever. Um, whereas I would almost like, almost like a super Hitler mode <laughs> where it's, it's like, it just gives Germany all these bonuses and makes them, you know, sets them on the path to winning if I don't do anything, oh, which I that's... feel like is an experience I very rarely have. There's a, uh, show title, super Hitler mode. <laughs> TJ wants super Hitler mode. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am officially endorsing super Hitler at this moment. <laughs> so, uh. We've been talking about these grand strategy games, and I wanted to also talk about like some smaller scale stuff. So, um, one of my all time favorite battle scale tactics level games is uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg, and part of the reason that I love that game so much was that it had that kind of choose your own adventure mode, where um, instead of uh, playing just the whole Battle of Gettysburg, you had these scenarios for, um, you know, the Round Tops and uh, um, McPherson's Ridge and all these very specific things, Seminary Ridge, where, like, if, you know, the Union wins at this one, then it switches over to, you know, Pickett's Charge next. But yeah, if the yeah. Confederates win that, then it switches over to, like, the Confederates doing this one final encirclement push for the total victory. Um and the thing that I liked about that was that it basically corrected for me, because as a general in most 
most war games of that scale, what I would tend to do is just push forward with my troops regardless. And they would be exhausted and they would be like ragged and broken, but that would, you know, generally win. And this was a good move for two reasons. First, because like there's always someone there to be able to fight. And second, because I don't have to worry about fighting the next battle a month later. I don't have to worry about how many casualties I take because I'm trying to win this game, not just trying to win this battle. So, you know, I'm just throwing troops into the grinder and that usually like busts them up. It makes battles just like collapse into raggedness over time. And eventually I'll probably win, but it looks nothing like history. Whereas Sid Meier's Gettysburg would always look like history because, it always would go from scenario to scenario. And that was a thing that like just really helped me love that game was because um, it corrected for being a game, basically. Yeah, well, and, and more recently, Ultimate General did something very similar where they had a, a fairly intricate branching set of scenarios that could happen based on fairly minor objective changes in, in previous battles um and i really like that as well you know for the same reasons yeah ultimate general goes some really interesting places uh and i actually mean that like geographically as well like you know at this point i felt i feel like i know pretty much every inch of the gettysburg battlefield pretty well including the parts that Mm -hmm. would have only hosted like hypothetical battles uh but ultimate general like goes to some uh some battlefields that i hadn't seen before uh, which is kind of cool, but you know, get, like Gettysburg is an inter- interesting example, I think, because uh, there are very few battles that lend themselves to what ifs as perfectly as Gettysburg, right? Like when you mm-hmm. talk about contingent factors, like Gettysburg is like almost nothing but contingent factors, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> there's so many weird decisions. Uh, on both sides that add up to those two armies getting locked together at Gettysburg for three days. Um, And there's also a lot of different ways, like, that we know things could have gone. I think it's one of those things where um, enough was said by the participants in the wake of the battle that, like, we know roughly what intentions were had X not worked out, right? So if, if... uh, for instance, like if the Union had been driven back further off, you know, on, on uh, day one, we, we, we know roughly, uh, you know, how Lee and, and would have deployed his, his Army Corps uh, the following day. We, we have a rough idea of, of how this stuff would have worked out. And we also have a rough idea of like how what, what the key moments were. The sort of determine the the outcome of the battle, which creates this really exciting and robust uh, playing field for alternate histories, because you can then tie that back to those those objectives you were talking about, Rowan. So, like on day one, uh, where things in in where I remember things really going to hell on day one uh, for the Union is the Barlow's Knoll scenario. Uh, so you, you know you you might feel like you're cleaning house as the Union. Uh, holding Seminary Ridge and just like mowing down Confederates right and left. Uh, And then Howard's Corps uh, takes position far to the north of the city. And uh, they're not a very strong corps. And they're so far north that they don't realize that um, basically uh, I think it's Yule's Corps is coming down actually behind their line. Uh, But 
the thing is, um, you can create these objectives where, like, if somehow the union manages to win uh, with, in that scenario, right? If somehow, like, Howard just, like, cleans house and, like, two, one V2s, uh, two Confederate Army Corps at this really, really bad ge- geographic position, uh, then we can say, like, okay, immediately, what's the Confederates, like, how do the Confederates regroup? Like, what, what do the battle lines look like from there? And then you can, like, construct a really convincing alternate history around the same orders of battle, the same terrain, even. Um, which gives me exactly those feelings I was sort of talking about toward the start of the show, right? It's like, oh, shit, I'm there. But I'm changing the outcome. But the game is also convincing me that, like, yeah, but, but it's, still, it's still history that you're standing in, right? And not some, like, crazy Civil War LARP. Uh, and and, that's, a, and that's, a, that's a weird, key, important difference. But I also think uh, it's something you can only really construct convincingly around places where most of your players are going to have that sort of keen understanding. So Gettysburg is special. Like, if it, there might not be a battle uh, in the world that Americans know as well as as, as Gettysburg. Um, but most of most of military history, even even major battles, like how many people know know, know a damn thing about Leipzig, for instance? Yeah, um, I was going to say Waterloo has been fought and refought mentally so many times that I think you could do this, but most of the other huge, more important Napoleonic battles, eh. yeah, I think you could make a make an argument almost for certain you know larger like Operation Barbarossa is something that comes to mind as, yeah. as another thing where there were a lot of flashpoints, there were a lot of weird decisions made. It's not on a battle scale, it's more of a, you know, a front scale type of thing, uh, which makes it a little bit different to just in terms of the kind of kinds of decisions and the kind of maneuvers we're talking about. Um, but yeah, in terms of individual battles, I think I think Gettysburg is definitely up there. I think also this goes back a little bit to the Three Kingdoms thing that I started with. Um, like a lot of what people know about those are comes from a novel written about it over a thousand years later. So just because oh my God. Um, some guy writing propaganda <laughs> for the Ming decided that he wanted to make uh, Kong Ming sound like the greatest general in history, despite the fact that he lost like five invasions in a row... Um, you get this weird idea of like how how should these go what should these be like should they match what the novels say this guy was capable of should they match what is uh what actually happened like they're just like it's like a like thousand years people's only reference for the civil war is harry turtle dove <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean not quite but yeah close it's um <laughs> I mean, it's like trying to figure out the orders of battle from the Iliad. Like, uh, we don't even know if that was a real war. God, oh, I do. I do love when games are like we're doing a historically accurate approach to Trojan War era Greek warfare. <laughs> I'm like, that's not a thing, guys. That's not. Really yeah. Like... Which Trojan we have some War? Because there were apparently some guys holding them. spears on pots, and that's the only contemporary. We know they had spears, and uh, yeah, that's. But uh, uh, yeah, so you get these things where this is conceivably possible for 
stuff that has been really well documented. And I think, you know, some of the Napoleonic Wars, um, the American Civil War, World War II, these are clearly heavily documented, well-beloved for military history kinds of things that um, not much else has. So they become the best kinds of things for having the super specific ultimate general Gettysburg ideas that uh, might not exist if they made, you know, ultimate general, um, uh, God, what's the one where Gustavus Adolphus did his thing. That's, the, I, that's a war I don't know anything about. Yeah. The 30 years wars, ultimate general, whatever 30 years wars things. I'm totally blanking on the thing that the battle that, you know, for 300 years after they say totally changed the entire face of history. And now I can barely remember the name like an idiot. This isn't your finest moment on this show. Uh, I don't have any of those anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it is like, like, I don't know what an ultimate general Borodino would look like. For instance, I barely know what happened at Borodino. I sure as hell don't have passionate feelings about how Borodino could have gone differently, right? Brightonfield. Brightonfeld. There we go. Okay. That's cleared up. But yeah, that's actually um, after Sid Meier's Gettysburg came out, they made, I think, Antietam. Fraxis made Antietam, and then another company made yes. two. Waterloo, uh, right? They made Waterloo, and then they made Borodino. Um. No, but they, they there's didn't, no way they made Borodino. They made they made a Borodino with that engine, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure it was Borodino. Um, but uh, they none of those post Gettysburg games included the choose your own adventure kind of overarching thing. They had scenarios, but they didn't have a full on campaign using those scenarios strung together. Oh, really? Which I was never really played disappointed. I thought I thought it was just more Gettysburg. I never actually played that. It didn't have the uh, the the strung the strung together campaign. No, it was you know well, here's I, the I whole battle. Antietam, yeah, they they was trying to do like. We don't need multiple scenarios because we're modeling the entire battle at, at full scale rather than these little smaller pockets of what happened. But yeah, it didn't have the the reactive restructuring of armies between phases. And, you know, Antietam could have that. It would be smaller scale. There would probably yeah, only yeah. be like five scenarios versus the seven that Gettysburg had. But um, we know enough about that. Oh, no, it was Austerlitz. Yeah, so that's what I know. Austerlitz, I think, is uh, the more mainstream of Napoleon's battles. Bordino, I think, is a bit well, I, I, is a bit underground. Uh, I was might have been getting it confused with the the system that made the in the late nineties made those. Uh, it was turn based. Oh, the Talonsoft games. Yeah, the Talonsoft. They yeah, did Bordino for sure. All, I think those were all uh, the, the Battleground series. Yeah, uh, which I think might have actually been John Tiller. Uh, but maybe I'm just assuming that because John Tiller's games all look like the Battleground games now. Uh, but yeah, they definitely did Borodino, and I'm not sure if they did Austerlitz. So you brought Barbarossa, which I think is an interesting case because like, there is... It's a case of alternate histories having to operate on this much larger scale, uh, mm -hmm. which is why I think like Gary Grigsby's War in the East... Uh, the most fun thing I've found to do in that game is to launch Barbarossa again and again and again <laughs> and again. Uh, be, because, like, it's this, it's this multi-month uh, mammoth undertaking 
that you start to realize the alternate history is just like <laughs> the Germans did really well invading Russia. They 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 were pretty good at it. Um, and they sort of set the fast time to get to the gates of Moscow. And it ends up being like this weird time trial experience because you start trying to figure out like how can you like what was missed like what like what what lines of attack are you missing right like how can like what the, what do you do about the Pripet marshes you know they're there what are you going to do about them um and it's a case of there's not like any one i'm not sure there's any one like moment like inflection point so gettysburg is games about gettysburg that go off in alternate history directions uh and i think most most games that have sort of followed in its footsteps, so like Ultimate General Gettysburg, uh, I would say maybe the Take Command series, um, they sort of focus on these 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 key moments, these key encounters uh, that you can sort of isolate and 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 play uh, again and again. Uh, with World War II, I think maybe that gets a little harder, and certainly with Barbarossa, it's impossible because with Barbarossa, you're dealing with something where like I'm not sure there really there really are. Uh, key inflection moments the it's it's this it's this slow accretion of factors uh that begin to to really tell the story uh you know maybe maybe you could say like operation typhoon uh was uh was a key moment but by that point the uh the horse had already kind of bolted um but yeah it's it's more it's more of a an issue where it's not like a specific decision someone made on a specific day that messed you know messed things up it was a decision someone made on a higher level that played out over a longer period of time that ended up being sort of a a protracted inflection point like one of the big ones is like what the hell was stalin doing and you know this sort of general idea is Stalin like went into a funk and didn't do anything. But I've also read some histories that suggest that no, Stalin was actually doing the best he could with a massive military, um, being massively outgunned and so on. And like, can you model having a leader who's just not trying? Can you model having a leader who's actively doing the wrong things? Like, that's that gets really difficult, especially if you're not well, at a Hearts of Iron level. This is something that um, yeah, I think I wrote about this ages ago too. Uh, oh, that's, a, that's a, I'm so glad you brought that up, Rowan, because one of the reasons <laughs> that things actually go so horribly wrong for the Soviets uh, is that Stalin gives his not one step back order, and. The problem is the thing the Soviet army absolutely needed to do, or at least large swaths of it, was to get the hell out of the way of the German juggernaut and withdraw to better positions, uh, wait for reinforcements, just just like stop losing entire armies uh, in mass encirclements. Um, but instead, army after army ends up getting encircled and destroyed in the opening days of, of Barbarossa. Any human player playing from the Soviet position is a is going is probably going to have a much better strategic view of what's happening because they have no matter what the well yeah no matter what the fog of war rules are you know you're playing a Barbarossa scenario right so you basically know like look there's a shit ton of Germans beyond that front line uh (laughs) I need to start I need to start boogieing east uh and and see and see if I can make a stand somewhere else um People who were there at the time had no idea what they were in the path of, 
right? And that's that's a, that's a thing you can't sort of recapture is is this notion of you just have no idea. Both the Germans and the Russians are totally in the dark, really, about what the other side has. So the Russians keep being surprised that like these Panzer armies are materializing out of nowhere, and the Germans are. Uh, perpetually surprised that there's so many Russians <laughs> in places where they weren't expected to be. Um, but what you can't create is an incentive for the player to look at all those Russian armies, or even in an AI, look at all those Russian armies and say, "All right, you guys stay there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start this war by basically spotting you half of my effective combat forces." Um, and then I'll fight. And that's a hard that's that's not hard to systematize. It may be it may actually be impossible to systematize. Um, but you're not going to get an effective Barbarossa if you don't do that, if you don't create this uh, something to force the Soviet player to behave like Russian generals and make these suicidal stands because otherwise the NKVD is going to kill you and your whole family. Yeah, well, and that's another thing that isn't modeled very well in in a lot of war games is the the idea that there are there are politics behind so many of the decisions made in in these scenarios, and there's there's disagreement between leaders on the same side about what's appropriate and like what the actual goals are, which can lead to bad decisions being made or no decisions being made, and is part of the reason that I think bringing back to the topic of the show, things don't end up always feeling like they play out historically because we kind of intuitively know that historically you don't have one overarching guiding force who guides this grand strategy and has perfect control over everything and never has a general say, hey, I don't like this, I want to do it this way instead. You know, it's 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 always... The player being this you know, this grand commander with all of the info and and all of the hindsight in the case of of historical games, and I would love to see a game that sort of yeah, you would almost need to create a new game that based itself around trying to navigate the political labyrinth of what what waging a global war is from the perspective of a general or from the perspective of a head of state or from a member of the cabinet. And trying to make the best decisions that you as an individual would have been able to have the power to make at that time, as opposed to being this sort of hypothetical godlike entity that's in control of everything. I mean, there's a couple of war games that touch on that. One is uh, Stavka OKH, which is basically just an experiment from Rod Humble, basically, to try and do that. So Stavka OKH is, is basically like a Wargamer's Twine game. Um, okay. It's... Every year of the war in the East, depending on which side you're playing, uh, you are told to decide broadly what the uh, operational priorities of the Wehrmacht or the Red Army are going to be uh, for the next phase of the war. And so you just got to decide. There might be the decision you feel is objectively best, but then the game also tells you, like, I think, like, well, Hitler wants to attack to the south. And then you've kind of got to, it, it, it kind of asks you, like, do you try to hedge your bets? Do you just do what Hitler tells you? But then if it blows up in your face, 
Um, he'll blame you. Uh, do you say, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want. Uh, but at that point, you're burning up credit with, with Hitler. And if your plan doesn't work, you're, you're absolutely dead. Um, so that tries to get at that. And then, of course, there was uh, decisive campaigns. Uh, Barbarossa to Berlin, I want to say. And we did a show on that not too long ago. That tries to inject some of these elements of, like, um, you know, army group commanders just don't like each other. Uh, out in the field, mm-hmm. and so there's going to be penalties to their to their cohesiveness, uh, stuff like that. Um, but broadly speaking, no, I don't think there have been too many. There haven't been a ton of games that try to cover the type of stuff you're you're talking about, which is a pain. And I just, I just, I just remembered another one that kind of tried to do it on on a much less in depth scale that was actually it didn't get get nearly enough credit in my opinion was the uh the last roman campaign for um total war attila where you kind of had justinian and theodora and your wife and they were all kind of giving you competing missions and like your wife wanted to push for you to like just become emperor in the west and say screw the east and you had to kind of decide who you wanted to go with that was that was an interesting take on that formula so there's also uh, some a game that I might actually be older than TJ. Um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, I'm not it was, that much younger than you. It was an SSI game for the I think late '80s, might have been the mid '80s, but um, it's a Napoleonic game um, that was always just a little bit too ugly for me to get into. But you basically played as Napoleon or his opponent and you would give your orders to your generals and they would decide whether they were doing them or doing them well or whatever. So you might say like, you know, I need you to advance Marshall and yeah, you talking about the would... text. it was like a text command interface, like uh Marshall blank advance against there, blank. there is one of those i don't think that's the ssi one i'm thinking okay. of but there was also one of those so i guess it was a style but with like big vga blocks the like from ms paint yeah no i think i, I do yeah, i think we're talking about the same game i think yeah, this is no, the game I, that i bring up every three months on this show uh yeah. the tim stone wrote about on rock paper shotgun which i think is just called waterloo um yeah but yeah, uh, yeah. i think that's it uh no I, there's I also an ssi get the game rivalries. That- there was also an SSI game that had a similar kind of thing that I think was a lot more popular. Um, and I think it was just something like Decisive Battles of Napoleon or something like that. But, you know, you you might say, go advance here, and they would, you know, say, oh, that hill looks really neat. I'm going to go there, but maybe that hill is, like, right in the middle of being surrounded by the enemy advance. So you'd have to deal with things like that. So indirect command is something that war games have tried to model and it's i think really hard and often not very fun so um that makes it kind of difficult for it to be used theoretically that's the best way to handle stuff like the operational alternate histories but well i'd love i mean i'd love to see something like that in in like a ck2 style game like i'm gonna tell this duke to go do this mission but then the way he does that mission and whether he even wants to complete the mission at all are like based on his character traits so i have to be careful you know which general i send to go do this invasion the ck2 has kind of added that lately with um i think the lower crayon authority things to some degree you start a war and now you're not in charge of every single army most of the time they're following you but sometimes they just run off and do their own own thing um 
Yeah, yeah. but it's it's based more on like a rudimentary combat AI and not necessarily on like okay, the duke leading this army has the Roth trait, so he's going to advance when I yeah. told him to hold back. So that's that's more what I'd like to see or like I send an agent or an envoy out and based on what his character traits are and the person he's trying to manipulate's character traits that could skew the outcome based on that. So Yeah, the the SSI game is uh Battles of Napoleon. Um Okay, that is a different game. Extremely generic name, but uh, yeah, you establish objectives for each unit or commander, move commanders between units. You can move units and change formation, but I don't remember that being a direct movement. I think it's saying go here and seeing if the commander likes you enough to do it or trusts you enough or whatever. Um, I could never really get into it like I got into Shiloh, which had a more direct command structure but it's the same engine as we talk about this though we we're, we're like talking about that that uh battles of napoleon and uh the, the waterloo game i would be interested to see like more twine derived war games <laughs> i'm not even kidding like if I can play um, the uncle who works for Nintendo like 50 times to see every single like outcome on that creepy fucked up tree, um, <laughs> I could absolutely see myself doing something similar for like, um, you know, being put in charge of, um, you know, one of you know, one of the wings of Napoleon's army during the Waterloo campaign, for instance, right? So, like, you're not, you're not Napoleon, uh, you're, um, uh, his name is Grouchy, but I don't think it's pronounced that way. <laughs> but, well, let's just say it that way. Yeah, uh, so, so, so you're, so, so you're Marshal Grouchy, uh, the Grouchy, the Grouchiest Marshal, uh, but, like, a sort of twine game where, like, you're sort of both interacting with, your fellow marshals on this personal level, but then also you're trying to get the job done, right? Because that's something that comes up particularly like in the later stages of Napoleon's Empire is the fact that like it's it's kind of like a rock band in, in some ways <laughs> that was like that blew up huge, uh, but now they all fucking hate each other. That's kind of the story of <laughs> Napoleon's marshals to an extent, right? It's like 1806. <laughs> they're like they're ki- they're just crushing it. They're, they're, these guys are all untouchable. Like 1809, they're starting to like they're all starting to turn against each other, and <laughs> they're starting to like di- you know go around behind each other's backs. And, and I think those are things that, like, okay, so the way we interact with most war games um, and most historically, most historically driven games, the way we interact with them kind of determines the way we're saying history works. So your typical war game is like, well, warfare is about geography. And if you can't put it on a map, um, then it kind of doesn't really matter that much to us. Uh, but I think what we're touching on here again and again is a lot of times we, you know, you're, you're reading your history and it's not just about like, you know, who was on what hill with the attendant defense bonus or something. It wasn't necessarily about that, right? It was about like, was, you know, was Longstreet really committed to the plan? You know, was he sabotaging exactly. the entire thing? And that's Why not something... did Jackson sleep through the entire seven days battles? Uh, and yeah. I, I think that, that that's the thesis I would take from this is that, that a lot of the reason that a lot of war games and grand strategy games don't have that feeling of, of historicity that we were, we've talked about a little bit here and there is that 
so much of history is about people behaving imperfectly, and I think that that these strategy games have a tendency to want to, to they don't want to infringe on your agency, so they just assume that everyone behaves perfectly, but that's not really, you know, how things work, and so much has hinged on the motives of individuals who are not the supreme, you know, the supreme commander or the supreme political ruler or whatever combination of the above. I remember one time in community college, I was taking this political science class, and for like the last month of the class, we just played this um, pre-World War II board game. Um, so the idea was like to get your get your political ducks all up in order to uh, actually have um, your be in the best position when the war started or the war wouldn't start. So it's, it's you know, the first three years of Hearts of Iron 4. But the teacher divided us into groups according to um, the systems of government of the, uh, of the country. So I got put on France with like seven other people. Meanwhile, Russia and Germany only have one person. So they can have a clear strategic plan. And the guy who was playing Germany decided to basically trade all his influence for votes in the community colleges, you know, student council election. And <laughs> the teacher was like, that's perfect. Do that. And like, so, you know, you, you had... You know, the the French people were sitting there arguing, like, sometimes I had the idea of what would work the best, and sometimes other people did, and meanwhile, the Germans and the Russians got to do whatever because they had a supreme commander. But, you know, when I play as France at Hearts of Iron, I am the supreme commander, and there, I have certain penalties for France's political divisions, but I don't... I don't actually have people telling me to do the opposite of what I want to do. And so that was kind of a neat thing that board games might have. Um, that was obviously a rule that my teacher had for that little game thing. But it's a uh, co- that's a cool thing, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, like, I guess something similar is like, and it's a shame we don't see more games driven by stuff like this, but like Victoria has the entire pop model, right? And if you're just trying to play your game of realpolitik... And being like, guys, look at this! Look at this killer empire I'm constructing. But meanwhile, you've got this really pissed off working class uh, that's like, wait, what if communism? Uh, you know, and you're not taking <laughs> that into account. Communism? Yeah, what if? Uh, that's 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 the that's actually the lesson on sequel of the Communist Manifesto. Uh, it didn't it didn't take off, and it kind of spelled the end of Engel's career. Um, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, Crusader Kings has something like this, too, where, you know, you can be building the greatest empire in history, and then you die, and then your your new duke's, you know, lesser brother just decides he wants the whole thing, and you're kind of screwed. So there's this internal kind of pushback on... Uh, on whatever you're trying to do. And Crusader Kings actually, to go on a slight digression, has an interesting kind of thing where it always rubber bands back towards history, like you said, Rob, because if you are like the Duke of Champagne and you want to take over France and you do, you're still France. Like you're still ending up with yeah. this, you know, insipid Gallic empire. So that that's kind of there and that's kind of annoying sometimes, but it's also kind of cool that like, if you go and import that into EU four, regardless of who that family is in charge of France, you still have a France that might or might not be relevant to a France that you're used to. So I feel like 
you know, this conversation has been about what we want out of alternate histories, but I feel like increasingly we're coming to a point where maybe we're just tired of the fact that the only things that are ever put into systems are like the same things again and again and again. And what you don't see are approaches to like organizational models, right? Like, like things where it's not just you control the army. It's that the army itself has collective identity and politics that, that need to be taken into account. Um, and, and in general, we haven't seen stuff like that. And I, and I feel like that's kind of what we're thirsting for a, a little bit. Like that we, we that, that what, what we're looking for isn't so much like, oh, I just want history to play out the right way. But we want to see these alternate histories playing out for the reasons that feel right. We don't just want the same outcomes again and again, but we want different outcomes driven by maybe less appreciated factors that existed historically, if, if that makes sense. Is that, is that kind of where we're, where, where we're sort of alighting? Yeah, to some degree. And, and uh, I guess another way I could phrase it is that, um, just to bring up CK2 again briefly, well, really a, a lot of Paradox games, they have the concept of the Cassus Belly, where you're not allowed to go to war unless you have a political reason to. And that's a, it's a... Um, Negative might not be the right term, but it's it's a stop on the player unless you can gather the political will, whereas I would love to see more in a positive direction, like I need to do this thing because of the political will that is, is you know, behind my country and is steering my actions to do something I might not have wanted to do otherwise, such as, for instance, invading the Soviet Union, um, and, and to have it be... Something where the game encourages you to do certain things because of political whims that are beyond your control as opposed to just requiring you to um, structure your own actions around these stop political stops is how I would describe it. I mean, we could tie this in with current events and like look at the system that was gained when Britain left the EU. You have this thing where the conservatives decide that they want to win an election, so they say, oh, we'll throw you a bone and give you a referendum. Then some of the other conservatives are like, maybe if we're on the side of this referendum, people will really know us and we'll get super famous and we can be the next prime minister. And then, oh shit, the thing actually wins and nobody has any clue what to do about it. Like, they gamed the system for themselves, but like in a video game it would be very hard to actually model this kind of utter idiocy <laughs> it would be it, it would be hard to do it convincingly and it hard be, it'd be hard to do it satisfyingly for the player right because like as much as it's nice to say like the thing i said a moment ago like yeah bring these other systems to the fore a game where you're trying to like play britain on a geopolitical level but then you also need to be worrying about the internal like politics of the tory leadership uh begins to get really confusing right that's that like not only is that a hard thing to model but it'd be a hard thing to surface for the player right like you know like boris boris johnson's directionless ambition uh is (laughs) is is a hard thing to really like okay how do you like how are you going to make that pop up as a thing that's going to change your game in a satisfying way versus uh, in a way that's just going to piss you off? Um, 
Though I guess that's basically what happened to Cameron. But <laughs> yeah, anyway, I digress. <laughs> I mean, that, that's sort of the problem, is that it really just went bad for everyone. Yeah, but no, I'm... I'm it would be it would be interesting but possibly also frustrating where like you're playing a war game and then suddenly it's like oh yeah well the dep- the deputy chief of staff for the air force uh just forced this policy change through and you're sitting there like wait who who did what wait what like <laughs> wait, wait so wait so that like, basically like, where do my strategic bombers go that's all i want to know and the game's like well really you should have been in the room and that's not a great place to leave the player either um but one of the things is that this is just straight up hard to model like you you talked about how games tend to model the same things which are essentially like combat and economics like we can attach hard numbers to those things we can't attach hard numbers to social history very easily i would love a social history game i've talked about this with tj how like my dream game is taking a um one of the uh invading tribes at the end of the roman empire and slowly building that up into a nation state by the start of the renaissance yes, absolutely. like and i want like crusader kings you can do that from a political point perspective you can take over the franks or whoever but i want to do it building institutions like am i going if i buff up the church here is the church going to have whatever effect and like how do you model that how do you say this is definitely how these things happened and you know that's probably dozens of times more complicated than saying if you have gunpowder and your opponents do not then you have a you know five time buff to your missile attacks so it's not yeah. an easy thing for a designer but it's something that i would dearly love to see and it's it, it's fun to talk about certainly um and and sort of put these things on the wish list. Uh, so I think we should we should leave it there, uh, especially because I'm just not entirely sure how much of this recording will actually be usable. Um, <laughs> at this point, my microphone has migrated from a cardboard box uh, to a laundry hamper I've turned upside down in the center of my room that roughly approximates the height of a desk. But uh, it's sounding so. better. Well, hey, you, then then it your all hamper worked is, out. Your hamper is great. Fantastic. And we'll leave off our discussion of alternate histories and games right there for now. Thanks, Rowan, TJ, for a great discussion. Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. If you've been enjoying our show, please consider contributing at patreon.com slash 3MA and rate and review us on iTunes. I'd like to thank our listeners for their patience with this week's episode. Uh, Due to some job-related stuff, I've been in the midst of a move to Los Angeles for the last few weeks, and I haven't been able to record anything. As you can probably hear, I'm barely able to record anything right now, but that should get better over the coming weeks. Anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of 3MA. Until then, for Rowan and TJ, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.